0: Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in a series of messages called The Faith Foundations, a blueprint for the church. Today's talk, we focus on the Bible, inspiration. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church.
1: your Bibles and get ready. You can turn to Psalm chapter 19. We'll be there for the duration of this morning. Psalm chapter 19, right there in the middle of your Bibles. Flop open, you might get lucky. The title of the message is, He is There and He is Not Silent, taken from a book of the same name by Francis Schaeffer, talking about the existence of God and how God exists but God doesn't expect us to put blind faith in that. There is great evidence for the existence of God. When it comes to the Earth's origins, you really only have about two options, and let me just tell you, both of them require faith. God isn't gonna let us get away that easily. Your first option is, you can believe in the Bible, what it says. The Bible simply begins in Genesis 1-1, saying, in the beginning is, was God, and God created the heavens of the Earth. The Bible assumes the existence of God. The Bible believes that there's enough evidence out there just in the physical universe that the Bible doesn't have to give you an introduction greater than, in the beginning, God. And so the Bible assumes the existence of God based upon all that is seen. And it tells us the origins of human life. God created the heavens and the earth, and frankly, he made you and I in his own image. It's a beautiful picture. Your other option also requires faith. Many people don't think about that, but the other option also requires faith. Your other option for believing in the origin of man is evolution, the Big Bang. You say, how does that require faith? Well, consider this. You believe in the evolutionary, what do we call it? Evolutionary law, is that a law of science? What do we call it? It's an evolutionary theory. What's a theory? It's something that cannot be proven. What do we call it when a person chooses to believe in something that cannot be scientifically proven? That's faith, friends. You still have to exercise faith even though you go, oh, well, I'm a man of science. Are you? You see, even within the evolutionary theory, it requires so much faith. Friends, I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution. I'll tell you why. Because to believe in evolution, I have to first disbelieve several scientific laws. This isn't gonna be a science lesson, but I'm gonna give you a little bit. Okay, let's go back to school for just a minute. The Big Bang by itself is this giant explosion, right? And it sent everything out into the universe and supposedly created all things. This explosion, scientifically, is that an action or a reaction? Explosion's a reaction. Well, let's go back to school for a minute then, and, and what is Newton's third law of motion? For every action, there is a equal and opposite reaction, right? Well, if the Big Bang <clears throat> is a reaction, what was the action that started it? Science can't tell you, because there's no answer that obeys the laws of science. In fact, it would, they would have to go against Newton's first law of motion too, right? Which simply says, an object at rest tends to stay at rest, et cetera, et cetera, unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. In other words, an object at rest will stay that way for time and eternity unless an outside unbalanced force, i.e. God, comes in and causes a reaction. It's scientifically impossible. Evolution says that all matter evolved. Single cell organisms, right? You have this primordial soup and somehow lightning or whatever created life from unlife. You know, sort of like what Marvel and DC expect us to believe, that a guy can fall into a vat of acid and somehow become stronger as a result? Never happened to me, but that's what they say. But evolution says the same thing. You need to believe that from unlife came life. Like, somehow lightning struck the body of water. Lightning in my world kills life, but in that part of the universe, evidently billions of years ago, it was different. And then Unlife became a single-celled organism and then became more organized into a multi-celled organism, became slugs and snails and fish, which eventually crawled out somehow and became a lizard. And that lizard decided, you know, one day it's better off if I become a mammal, then a bird and then a mammal and then a primate and then eventually sentient human life like what we have here today. It sounds ridiculous when you just kind of put it that way. It's more than ridiculous, friends. It disobeys scientific law. You say, well, which ones? Look at the second law of thermodynamics, also called the conservation of mass. Okay, in other words, all the usable energy in the universe is actually diminishing. It's not increasing. One of those variables that come from that, one of these laws, is something called the law of entropy, what we see here with this fruit. It's what happens when you're, we get a little too zealous about eating healthy and we go to Aldi or wherever and we buy too much fruit and it comes home and it looks like that. This is what happens with fruit. This is what happens in life. All matter is breaking down. It goes from an organized state to a disorganized state. That is the natural byproduct of time and chance. But evolution says you need to just place faith in this, that during that period of time, the natural byproduct of time and chance was increasing organization, increasing life, increasing complexity. Friends, I don't have enough faith to believe that because scientific law will not permit it. No, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And what did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. Do we have any evidence of God? Why do you believe in God? What evidence do we have for the existence of God, and we in these great proclamations of divine creation, Psalm nineteen answers that question. Psalm nineteen shows us how God reveals himself it 's a, it's a term that we called revelation, not the book of revelation, which is also a revealing, but revelation is the Revelation, the way that God chooses to show himself to man, that God is there, he exists and he is not silent. God has a message for his creation, and there's two primary ways that God communicates to man. One is through what we call general revelation, and the other is through special or specific revelation. Okay, So first thing we're gonna look here is that general revelation reveals the existence of God. General revelation is that which may be concluded about God based upon looking around at nature, the sunset, the earth, the complexity of life, ecosystems. It reveals something about our Creator God. This is also in the scientific world called the teleological argument for God, from the word telos, meaning the end. If we look at the end of something, we can back it up and figure out what was at the beginning or what caused it. Uh, Those of you who are police, you do it all the time. You arrive on a scene of a crime or an accident and you look at these cars and how they're beat up and mangled. You look at skid marks in the road. All of these evidences, we can look at the telos, the end, and we can make a teleological argument about what happened. And these guys are so good at what they do, they can tell you which car entered at what time and how they hit. They can tell you what the force and the velocity that they hit, all from the telos, just looking at the end. The Bible says that we can look at the telos, the end, the creation, what God created, and it's supposed to tell us something about our creator. Psalm 19.1 begins this way. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We can learn about the glory of God and how wonderful and glorious and beautiful he is through What? looking at the heavens. What are the heavens? Okay, a lot of times we say heaven, you're thinking of, oh, that's where we go when we die, okay? But when the Bible uses the term heavens, he's talking about anything that is beyond us. It is beyond the earth. The first heaven the Bible talks about is our atmosphere. Genesis 1, verses 7 to 8 says, and God made the expanse and separated the water that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. We call that our atmosphere. But God says, God called the expanse heaven. That's the first heaven. It's our atmosphere. It's the waters above the earth. Beyond that, though, God talks about the second heaven, if you will. That's outer space, the planets and everything that is beyond our atmosphere. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. All the heavenly bodies, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, and then all the stuff out of the, the Milky Way, way beyond, is further than we can even see. God created all of those things. And so that's the second heaven, it's outer space. And the third heaven is referred to in 2 Corinthians 12, verse two. He says, I know a man who in Christ, who was 14 years ago caught up in the third heaven. Paul was speaking humbly of himself, that he had an, if you will, an out-of-body experience and God brought and ushered him into the presence of God to reveal things to him. And Paul called that the third heaven. So there's not three heavens, despite what Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, okay? There's, you've got, you have your single heaven, and that's where God lives. But then you have the heavens, the heavenly bodies, outer space, and then you have the heaven that here is on earth. And the Bible says that simply by looking at the heavens, it shows something about God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Nature describes his creator. I've always been asked by people, well, don't you believe on life on other planets? I say, why do we need life on other planets? Well, because there's so many. I'll say, you've got to understand what the purpose of creation is. It's to declare the glory of God. Why do we have an infinite, expansive universe? Because we have an infinite, expansive God. When we look at the infinity of the the nature, we have to naturally conclude that the creator is greater than the creation. It communicates something about God. So I don't need some Martian on another planet to validate why we have such a large universe. The large universe is meant, Psalm 19, 1, to declare God's glory. Let me show you a picture here from the Hubble Space Telescope. That's an interesting picture. It comes from the Eagle Nebula, which is just a gathering of gases and dust in space. And this particular formation, taken from the Hubble Telescope, is called uh, the Pillars of Creation. Now, we look at it on a little screen like this, and we're like, well, that's really pretty. But can you imagine just if we were able to usher you into the presence of the pillars of creation, the kind of awe, the kind of wonder that you and I would have just looking at that? What does that reveal about our creator God? That he is magnificent, that he's glorious, that he's beautiful, that he is something so far beyond us That's what the heavens are meant to communicate, that God is a great and glorious and beautiful and wonderful God. That is why we have the universe that we have. Psalm 19 says, even the sky above, it shows forth his handiwork. We're meant to go outside and we're supposed to see the beauty of a sunrise, the beauty of a sunset, the might and power of the sun in midday. And we're to conclude that God himself is mighty and powerful and beautiful. We're supposed to look at the cycles of nature, the hydrologic cycle. We're supposed to look at the complexity of life. I can cut myself, and the body will rush these little platelets and things, and it will clot up that, and then magically, my body will just heal itself. You say, that's a byproduct of time and chance. Not according to scientific law. All matter is breaking down. No, we're supposed to see this this creation. Because of the design, there is therefore a very intelligent, Designer. So no, design does not arise out of time and chance. What does arise from time and chance? Chaos. Drive around here at any given place, and sometimes you'll you'll be driving through, and you'll look in some abandoned house in the middle of the woods. Your first conclusion is this: somebody built that house. Why is that your first conclusion? Why did you not assume that that is a naturally occurring uh, thing in nature? because you see the design. Be, there's a roof that's meant to keep water from going in your, you know, getting your hair wet. It, there's, there's windows to allow you to see in and to allow fresh air into the, into the house. There's a door that's just right for human to walk in and out. So your first assumption when you see that house is, this didn't happen by time and chance, this was designed by somebody. The design gives evidence that there's a designer. Furthermore, the second thing you conclude about this abandoned house is you see, it's breaking down. The roof is starting to cave in, the windows are breaking, the paint's chipping off, the house is falling in on itself. That is the natural byproduct of time and chance. Not increasing order. You wouldn't expect to drive by this abandoned house 20 years from now and see a mansion that just happened by itself, that this house somehow became more and more complex. No, the natural byproduct of time and chance is chaos. It's disorder. It's less energy. That's scientific law. And yet we are demanded by science to believe the opposite. And we are taught and believe, and we believe that. But that belief is a choice. Number two, we're going to see that general revelation. It's available to all people. Look at Psalm 19 and verse 2. He says, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals Knowledge. Every day, our observations of our body and our our nature, it pours out speech. In other words, everything that we see in the universe, including your bodies and everything out there in nature, when you go and visit a cave, a mighty mountain, or you see a beautiful waterfall, Niagara, we're supposed to see that and say, wow, a great and glorious God created this. There's a speech that it pours out. Is this speech an audible voice? Do we go out in nature? And does God speak out? No, nature is the great pantomime of God. There's no speech that is uttered. Psalm 19 verse three says, there is no speech, there are no words and whose voice is not heard. And yet, without uttering a single word, nature can communicate so much about the greatness of our God. Is there anywhere in the world that does not have access to this general revelation? obviously not look at Psalm 19 verse 4 he says their voice goes out where throughout all the earth and their words unto the end of the world and so this verse answers the questions what about all those those tribes in Africa who've never heard the Bible for some reason it's always Africa but that's what people do you know what about those obviously God can't be true because what about all those people they've never heard what's wrong with that question it's a flawed question, isn't it? It assumes that people have no knowledge of God. What does Psalm 19, verse one, two, three, and four say? We all have a certain knowledge through general revelation about who God is. We have enough general revelation to cause us to seek out and to hunt who that God is. We do that everywhere else in life. If all of a sudden we're, uh, we're let's just say in Ashland, somebody discovers this ancient pottery to a race of people we've never known before, what would happen? Ashland would become an archaeological dig because of this general revelation making a teleological argument because there's this ancient pot somebody had to design it and we want to find out who it is and so somebody's tearing up everybody's backyard and they're looking for signs of this ancient civilization that's what general revelation is meant to do to look for specific answers the general revelation of who God is as he's revealed in nature and through the stars and space it's meant to cause man's heart to seek after who is this God obviously he exists I need to know more but for man we won't we won't seek him out because our deeds are evil men Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 men don't come to the light why because they're not interested in the light no it's because he says their deeds are evil I don't want to change my life I want to continue living my way so no I'm not going to seek after God And so, no, everybody has revelation of God beyond even the revelation of just what's out there. We have something else Romans 2 talks about called our conscience. The Bible says that the law of God, if you will, is written, it's written on their hearts. We all have this little inner Jiminy cricket who's telling us, do good don't do evil and it pricks our hearts when we do wrong and we do evil and so even just in that bit of general revelation about God just looking at how around earth no matter which planet or which uh, country you go to which continent everybody we all universally agree murder is wrong adultery is wrong stealing is wrong beating people up is wrong why do we all feel the same way if we're just evolved creatures it's because you're not it's because there's a singular sovereign creator God who created all of us, and he put a little bit of his image within us, in our conscience. The Bible says in Romans 2.14 that without having the law of God, a physical special revelation, they've become, their conscience has become a law unto themselves. Not so they can be saved apart from the Bible. Remember, the purpose of the law is the knowledge of sin there's enough revelation that we have by looking at nature and our own conscience to convict man Romans 1 says so that they are without excuse how can God condemn people who've never had a Bible it's because they still had a message of God They still had the general revelation we get out there, but they won't seek him. They still have the conscience knowing that they are living against this this internal sense of right and wrong, and yet they still will not seek God. They won't seek to become right with God so that they're without excuse. Number three, we're gonna see here that general revelation reveals that God is our creator. Uh, Verses four through six, the first example David's gonna use is the son He says in them, the heavens, he has set a tent or a dwelling place for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber or like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit is the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. And so David... David is saying here that there's enough evidence just by looking at the sun to tell that there's a creator God. You look at the course that it's on. You look at its great and mighty heat. You look at how the earth is dependent upon the sun. He says it's like a, a man leading his bridal, bridal chamber, okay? He also says it's like a champion running its course. He's talking about the course that the sun, you know, the sun, you know, how, you know, it, it comes up in the morning, it goes down at night, he says that evidence shows that there's a creator God because if, what if the sun didn't go around in circles? You know, well, obviously it doesn't, we go around, but you know, what if the sun didn't rise and set? Would that be a problem? You ever been to Alaska? You know, where, you know, certain parts of the, the year, it's like sunny all the time. I did it and I, I camped out in Alaska and I couldn't get to sleep in that tent because there was sun still at two in the morning and it was driving me crazy and suicide hits its peaks in those winters because in Alaska it's dark continually at certain parts of the earth. No, God made the circuit of the sun because human life depends on it. If you look at the sun and its relationship to the earth, the earth is the Goldilocks bed of the universe. It's just right. If we were just a percent or so closer to the sun, we'd we'd burn up and life would disappear. If we were a percent or two away from the sun, we would freeze and life would disappear. If the earth was tilted one half of a degree off of its axis, life would cease. If the earth's relationship of oxygen and everything began to, you know, was unbalanced, we would experience death. It's almost as if God himself is preserving this for man. In Acts 17, 28, it says, in him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things, talking about Christ, and in him all things hold together. The very molecules themselves, why they hold together, scientists can't figure it out. There's certain, you know, positive and negative things that are supposed to repel each other, and they don't. It's almost as if Jesus holds all things together. Jesus is in control of this earth. By the way, knowing just Colossians 1.17 alone is why I don't stress about the environment too much, I don't think we ought to wipe our feet on the environment and treat God's gift poorly. But friends, the existence of the universe doesn't depend on you. In him, all things consist. I'm not worried about an asteroid hitting the earth and ending all life, why not? Because the earth is gonna be here until God's done with it. I'm not worried about global warming and these cycles of cold and hot, why? Because the earth is gonna be just fine until Jesus comes back. And by the way, and when he does, it's not gonna be pretty for the earth. Why don't we worship the earth? Because the earth won't be eternal. Did you know that? What you see here, this building, this planet, all that you've done, it's gonna disappear someday. That's what the Bible says. 2 Peter 3.10 says, but in the day of the Lord, that's the day that the Lord will come back finally in judgment to judge sin in man. The day of the Lord will come like a thief when you don't expect. And then it says the heavens, we just talked about the heavens, they will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, they will be burned up and dissolved in the earth itself. And the works that are done on it will be exposed. So don't get it too attached to the planet. Don't call it Mother Earth. When man gets detached from the Bible and detached from God, we start to see ourselves. Uh, you watch movies, you watch TV shows, you watch documentaries. What does it do? It has a very low view of man. God doesn't. These documentaries talk about how Earth would be so much better off without you and I, that you and I are a blight on the planet, and old mother Earth would be so much better off without people. And apart from God, you come to these conclusions, and it's a depressing, hopeless, suicidal-type thought. The Earth, was cre- the Earth is the Lord's, but it was created for man. It was created for you and I to enjoy. God gave man dominion over the Earth to consume the life that is on it for food, to live in it freely, to use its resources. So no, man is not this cosmic leech. Man is living in the garden that God has created for him as a home, and we're supposed to use it. So we don't deify, we don't glorify the earth, we don't believe in Gaia, we don't believe in Mother Nature, we believe in Father God, and he created the earth for you and I. But apart from the Bible, you can't come to these conclusions. Number four, we're gonna switch here and we're going to talk about special revelation and that it's inerrant. General revelation reveals general things about God that he exists and we ought to seek him. Special revelation says, now that you've sought me, you've found me. He says, you will search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. God will be found. If there's somebody way off in the jungle of Africa and they have general revelation and they somehow desired to find God, can God get the word of God to them? He sure can. He's, he's infinite in knowledge. He knows if there's somebody who needs to know him and somebody's seeking after him. Does God have the power to raise up a missionary and send them to them? Of course he does. God has infinite power. Why then do most still not have access to the word of God? It's because Romans 3.11, no man seeks after God. That's what the Bible says. We've all gone our own way. We want to live our life our way. I wanna be my own Lord. I wanna be my own God. I wanna say what's good and evil for myself. So all the lostness that you see here on earth, the lack of the Bible, the lack of light, it's due to man's heart, not a lack of God's power. So we're gonna see here first in number four that special revelation is inerrant. Inerrant just means it's without error. Verses seven to nine point to this special or specific revelation. So Psalm 19 is gonna go from the general revelation to the specific revelation. That which is specifically laid out by God, this is our Specific revelation. He's going to talk about the law of God. He says, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous, all together, So you have these six different categories all describing the same thing. We're not meant, by the way, to take all of these categories, these descriptions of Scripture, and to break them up. Oh, you see, the precepts of God do this, the Word of God does this, the fear of the Lord does this. No, this is Hebrew parallelism. Okay, this is a psalm. In this psalm, this parallelism, what they'll do is they'll often take two phrases and say the exact same thing using different words, and it's meant to emphasize something. What happens if God does six lines of parallelism? That's six exclamation points that God has given to show us this is true, this is important. And he says six times that the law of the Lord, and the first thing he says is perfect. This is a word that describes animal sacrifice being perfect without blemish. There's nothing wrong with it. This verse by itself describes the inerrancy of the Bible, that it's flawless. The Bible is sure, he says. It's a word that means secure. It's a word that you would use to describe something that's been nailed down. It's not going to move or shift on you. The Bible is not going to change. Unlike the Mormon scriptures, the Bible never changes. It remains the same, just like our immutable or unchanging God. It says that the the law of the Lord is, he says, it is also uh, right. It's a word that means straight. It's a measuring rod. It's where we get the word canon. Have you ever heard of the canon of scripture? It's talking about the 66 books of the Bible. This is the canon. It's the measuring rod. It's straight. It's it's the standard by which man is measured. The word of God is also described as pure, meaning clean and radiant. Think of something that's been, you know, sheets that are blowing in the bright summer sun that have gone through a bleach cycle. You know, it's just, there's this white radiance to it. That says, that is the word of God. It's the same word used to describe the Shulamite bride in the Song of Solomon, to describe her radiant beauty in how she stood out amongst all the other women of the land. She was unique. In the same way, the Bible is described as pure and clean. It's unique. It stands out. It alone, out of all the, do a study, I did, of all the different religious documents in the world, and you're going to find this is the only one that bears the signature of God. It's the only one that talks about how God is the only one that saves. Every other religion, you're the hero. seems to me if God wrote a book, God is the hero. This is the only book that declares God to be the hero, not man. This is the only book that has fulfilled prophecies, the only book that declares authoritatively when it speaks on scientific or historical matters. Archaeology is only done to prove the Bible. It gives evidence to the truthfulness of the Bible. This is the only religious scripture on the planet that bears the signature of God. And so it is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure. And the Bible says it is clean. That same word clean in the Hebrew is used 90 times in the Old Testament to describe something that is ritually or ceremonial clean and therefore usable in the temple. What do we use in the temple of God, if you will, the the church of God today? This is the only book that we preach. The day that I start getting up here and I start just preaching opinions, I start preaching politics, I start preaching psychology, that's the day you need to start looking for a new pastor, This is the only book that that God himself describes as clean. It is suitable for use in the house of the Lord. And the Bible is also true. True means something that is to be believed. Because it is perfect, because it is sure, because it is uh, pure and clean, it is true. The Bible is worthy of you resting on it, putting your faith on it like sitting in a chair. It's not gonna break underneath you. You can trust it. You can trust your life. You can be sitting on your deathbed someday in a hospital and listening to that little beep, beep, beep. And when it flatlines, beep. Even at that moment, you can trust God. You can trust what God has says. You can trust your entire eternal future on what God says. God himself tells us the word of God is true. Number five, special revelation shows us how to live godly lives. Look at verses 7 to 9 again. We just read, you know, the, the law of the Lord is perfect. But then it talks about what the Word of God does in our life. The first thing the Word of God does is it says it revives our soul. Revive means to return to a state of living because apart from God, man is spiritually dead. The Bible says that before, apart from Christ, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Nothing. A dead man can receive life. That's what Lazarus did. Lazarus come forth and Lazarus receives life and he comes forth and he worships Jesus and they sit down, they have a dinner together. That's what a dead man is. The word of God can take a person who's completely dead and it can revive them. It can give them life. You need life? You need to be born again? It's all right here. The Bible also says it makes wise the simple. Simple people are people with undeveloped minds. When we're born into the earth, we have very basic needs in life. What is it? I need to be fed. I need to sleep. I need a clean diaper. And if we don't develop our minds through the word of God later on, we're still just as undeveloped, you know? And we live with the, the social eloquence of me want food. Me want girl, she pretty. Uh, you know, uh, me want sleep? You know, you sitting in my chair. You know, and that's, and that's, just how, that's how we are. Just, we just live by the basic drives of our flesh. If my body wants it, that must be what's right for me. That's how Bible describes a simple person. In fact, if you read Proverbs 7, when it talks about the man who goes into the adulterous woman, how is he described? Behold, I saw amongst the youths a man who is simple, devoid of wisdom. And what did he do? He went straight into where the prostitute lives. He committed, uh, you know, fornication, and he suffered. The Bible says, "Like an arrow, it pierced his liver." He did not know it would take his life. Why didn't he know fornication would take his life? Because he's simple. He doesn't know what the Word of God says. All he has is his own logic and his own reasoning. He has no idea what is true and not true. He's a simple person. The Bible is described as making wise the simple. It takes us who are foolish and who are bent on just obeying our bodies, and it causes us to be developed in our thinking to obey the Spirit of God. That's what the Word of God does. He also says the Bible rejoices the heart. The Bible makes us glad. Hebrews 12, uh, or uh, Nehemiah rather, 1243 uses the same term rejoice. It was used of when Israel was in the captivity in Babylon and God brings them back together and takes them into the land after 70 years. Their children have never even seen the homeland and all of a sudden the temple's rebuilt, Jewish culture and religion is restored and the walls around the city to protect them have been rebuilt. And at that time in Nehemiah 12, it says that they consecrated all of this to the Lord and the people rejoiced. That level of rejoicing, that the big things in life, I may still have bills, my still, children still may disobed, be disobedient, I may still go to bed tonight and argue with my wife before we go to sleep, but the big things in life, the temple, our culture, our religion, and our protection, they're taken care of, and so we rejoice. The Bible does that for us. Your life isn't going to be easy just because you read the Bible. As a Christian, did you find out you still have to pay taxes? As a Christian, did you find out that sometimes your children, they still rebel against God? You still stub your toe? You still get hurt? But you can still rejoice, can't you, why? Because the word of God rejoices the heart. If you're not rejoicing today, friends, it might be because we're taking too much information from the word of our sponsors, we're listening to the world, where you're, you're reading the news. Is that depressing? If you're really depressed right now, friends, let me recommend two things. Go on a one-week fast from the news and from your social media and just see what that does and instead replace that time with reading the Word of God. News from man is necessarily going to depress us because man has no hope in himself. But then we replace that time with reading the Word of God. The Psalm 19 tells us that the Word of God rejoices the heart. If you don't have joy in your life today, we're probably listening too much to man and too little to God. Friends, get in the Word. It rejoices the heart. The Bible also says the Word of God is enlightening. Enlightening it, light is that which causes us to see what's really out there because otherwise we're stumbling in the darkness and we don't know what's there. The Word of God in Psalm 119 is described as God's Word as a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path so that my feet know where to go. I can dodge the holes, I can dodge the poisonous snake that's in the road. The lamp does that. In the same way, the word of God, as we're going throughout life, we shine it ahead. What should I do, Lord? How, how should I live in my marriage? How should I live in the work? How should I treat my children? In God's word, cast this bright light. This is the way that you should go. Walk you in it. Why don't we use the light more? It's because we think we already know the path. Isn't it? You don't turn on the light because you think you already know. You've done it. I did it just this week, okay? I thought I knew where I was going, and God knew I needed an illustration. So here we go. Here's my suffering. I thought, I've been in this house that we're in for several months now, and I needed to throw something away. And those of you who know me, I don't do anything slowly. I don't just saunter into the kitchen to throw something away, okay? I'm just like, oh, hey, I need to get this in there. You know, let me throw that away, and I'll get over here. and That's just how I live. I live at a higher speed and a higher RPM than some. And it was dark in the kitchen. And I assumed that the path was clear to the garbage because it always is. So I made an assumption and I ran into there. Now, what I didn't know is, with the light being off, is that my wife, not blaming her, but it did happen. There was like these large serving trays that 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 I bought her, these giant oak things. They're like four inches thick of wood. And for whatever reason, They were right in front of the garbage can. I mean, right in front of the trash can. And what did I do? I ran into to throw something away in the dark. I know there's nothing here. And have you ever stubbed all five toes at the same time? I mean, I hit that so hard and I danced like David before the Ark of the Lord. Amber was freaking out, had no idea what was going on. I said, "Mm." (laughs) I thought I knew. That's why I didn't bother with the light and in life friends a lot of times we think we know the path to take we think we know it's right there is a way the bible says that seems right to a man but the ends thereof are death if we just proverbs 3 5 and 6 if we lean our own understanding that's what it gets us we're walking in darkness we don't have the light of god's word and friends even christians can walk in the dark Oh, I'm saved, 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 glorious. I'm going to heaven when I die. But in the meantime, I'm going to walk, I'm going to live life with a closed Bible and I've shut off the lantern of God's word. And I think I know the path in life. And what do you do? You stub all five toes in life. No, the word of God is enlightening. Psalm 19 also says the Bible endures forever. The Bible's not going to cease. It's not going to disappear It cannot be destroyed. Despite the best efforts of man to destroy the Bible, it will not be destroyed. The word of God endures forever. In fact, just last week, we looked at Matthew 5.18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, what does he say? Not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, not even the smallest little portion of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God will preserve it. Psalm 119.89 says forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's firmly fixed, it's a pillar, it's planted, it's staying. The Bible is saying that the powers of heaven itself will protect the Bible's message. Man can't destroy it. Has man tried? All the time. They cannot. In fact, if you look at some of the preservations of other well-known books that people didn't even try to destroy, Uh, You have about 693 copies of Homer's Iliad about the Trojan War, okay? That's the most documented ancient book, secular ancient book that we have, it's 693 copies. Works of Aristotle, you have five copies. Evidently, philosophy is not nearly as interesting as the Trojan War, so we only got five copies left. Um, Livy's Roman History, 20 copies. Caesar's Gallic Wars, nine to 10. Why is it nine or 10? I don't know, but they say nine to 10. Okay, so you have all of these, and these are considered the most well-preserved ancient documents that we have. Why is it important that we have all of these ancient documents in these numbers? Because if you have, say, five to 10 copies of a book, you can create what we call a majority manuscript. So if nine out of 10 copies use this word, and one copy uses a different word, which was the real word, well, clearly it was the nine, this one was an error. And looking at them all together, we can come up with a very, very accurate composite. So that's why nobody doubts Homer's Iliad is what Homer wrote. We have 693 copies to compare with one another and we can come up with a majority manuscript that says, no, this is exactly what he said. We can verify it. Let me ask you this. If God preserved the word of God, shouldn't there be quite a bit of manuscript evidence for it? If the word is forever settled in heaven, God has promised to provide and preserve his word. Shouldn't there be a lot? How many do you think there are of biblical manuscripts and fragments? How many do you think? Did you know there's over 25,000 fragments and, and manuscripts of God's Word that when we put it together, friends, gives us not just, not just 693. It is far and away far 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 and away the most well-preserved document to ever live despite the fact that it's also been the most persecuted and fought and burned and destroyed book in all of history it's almost as if God himself is preserving it friends so no don't don't worry that the word of God is going to disappear God promised it will be here and it will last forever Psalm 19.9 says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Righteous is something that is declared innocent. It cannot be, no one can bring an accusation of wrong against it, that the word of God is inerrant and no one can attack it. It doesn't mean people can't try. Y'all heard of a man named Lee Strobel? Guy wrote a book called The Case for Christ. He was a a Yale-educated fellow who was a, a legal editor at the Chicago Tribune which, by the way, is not a Bible college, okay? So they don't believe in God. Well, this very highly educated fellow who is a renowned atheist, his wife comes to know Jesus. He's not pleased with that. So he goes on a two-year mission to disprove the word of God. And he, more than most of us, have the education and the resources to disprove it. And during that two years, what did he find? There's far too much evidence for me to disbelieve the Bible. And so you know what happened? God gloriously converted him. Four years after that, he became a preacher. That's what the word of God does. You can attack it, you can attack it, but friends, the word of God is gonna prevail. There's too much evidence. The Bible is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. We are not gonna destroy the Bible. It's true. The last thing we observe in Psalm 19 is number six, special revelation is precious. He says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So to unenlightened man, man who doesn't see the word of God, we can't read Matthew 6, seek not, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Lost man doesn't have that. So man begins with this basic idea that life is about Gold. Life is in the abundance of things I possess. Life is about going to a good school so you can get a good job, so you can acquire gold, so you can spend gold, so that obviously having great possessions makes you happy. Is that how it works? That's how an unenlightened man feels, and then they get to the very top of that and realize money doesn't buy happiness, and then they get suicidal. And rich, wealthy people, they take their life because life is not about gold. The word of God is more desired than gold, even the finest gold earn all the money you want, make that your sole devotion, ignore your children, ignore your marriage, and just earn lots and lots of gold to make you feel secure in yourself so that you never have to put faith in God. And then at the end of your life, man, you're going to die before your wife, statistically it's true, and she's going to mourn you and go to Barbados, and she's going to find a scuba instructor, and they're going to spend the rest of their days spending your life insurance. That's life. Friends, why live for that when you can live for the gold which never perishes, the gold that is eternal. It's the word of God and the souls of men are the only things you're gonna take with you in eternity. But you can presently use your gold to invest in that. So no, the Bible is worth more than gold. He also says that it's sweeter than honey. Something that is sweet is something that is pleasant to us. It brings a pleasantness, an agreeableness to something that is bitter. It's the reason some of you don't drink coffee black, right? In it's bitter, raw, unrefined, it might I add sinful form. And so you add something sweet to it because it's undrinkable in that state, right? So you add cream and you add sugar and you add all kinds of other fun little pumps of caramel. Right? I'm not a coffee drinker, so I mean, that's about how many I'd use. And it makes it agreeable, makes it sweet so that despite the bitterness, there's something there that just makes it work. And so in the same way, life, just your, because you're a Christian, doesn't mean it's gonna be easy, but the word of God makes life sweet. God helps elevate our thinking well above the earth to see things from an eternal perspective. And you know what? Life is sweeter and it's beautiful and it has purpose and it has joy. Moreover, he says, by them your servant is warned. We're warned of the dangers of sin. We're warned of, the, of hell. We're warned of the fact that life is short, so don't live for these temporary things. Worry less about your earthly legacy, friends. None of us will have a great legacy. How many of you can mention more than even two or three pharaohs of Egypt? Most powerful men in the world of their day, and we've all forgotten them. There's none of us whose legacy is gonna last a long time. I don't care if the wing of the library gets named after you. Nobody's gonna care. Welcome to Unity Baptist Church. If you're a visitor here today, very encouraging message. But it's true. Friends, what is our legacy? It's not here. What did Jesus say? My kingdom, it's not of this world. And those who are part of Jesus' kingdom aren't living for this world either. We use what we need to in this world, but we find our sweetness and our value, our gold, is in the Word of God. You say, as we close in this message here, you say, well, if the Word of God is so obvious, if the word of God is so clear, if the general revelation tells so much about the glory of God, if my conscience reveals the moral nature of our God, if the special revelation of God, the message of God in the Bible is so clear and so obvious, why do most people reject it? If it's that clear, why, why do we only have a handful of people that believe it? Did you know the Bible even answers that? Romans 1, 18 through 20. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why don't we believe in God? He says, who by their unrighteousness, their unrighteous living, their unrighteous lifestyle, what do we do? We suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's a word that means to shine. If we're in a pitch black room and one of you guys lights a candle, it's plain, it shines, it's obvious. God is saying that the truth of God is plain to all men because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived or understood ever since the creation of the world through the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. Why doesn't man have excuse before God? It's because we had the truth around us, but those who refuse to believe in the truth, we suppress it because of our unrighteous living I don't want to leave my sinful lifestyle I like it I want to stay there so I'm going to take the truth and I'm going to suppress it I'm going to hold it down we've used this illustration before about a child holding under a beach ball trying to trick his little brother and he puts it between his legs and he holds it under but the beach ball naturally wants to rise to the surface and be seen that's what God says the truth of God is nobody is born an atheist the truth of God is too evident. It's this, it's this cosmic beach ball that keeps rising to the surface, demanding to be observed, demanding to be seen, demanding to be recognized. But man keeps holding it under, why? Because of their unrighteousness. I want to be my own God. I want to say what's right and wrong. And so I'm going to take this inconvenient truth and I'm going to hide it where I can't see it and I'm going to plug my ears and hum the national anthem and pretend it's not there. The Bible says this is what man does so that he is without excuse. Now, the existence of God is very clear through the things that are made, through general revelation. The will of God as we go from general to a specific revelation is even more clear. God spells it out. Here's how you can have eternal life. Friends, I pray this morning that as we've been studying the Word of God together, if you've not taken time yourself to examine the truths of the Word of God, maybe you're still suppressing the truth. You don't want to believe it yet because it goes against how you want to live. Friends, can I tell you, let that go. Let the beach ball rise. Just let the truth be what it is. Allow God to reveal that sin. Confess it before God. Agree with God as to that sin and then forsake it. Walk away and, friends, receive in yourself eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and putting your faith in him. Give it some thought today. Father, we pray this morning as we close out this service. God, it's my sincerest prayer and desire that if there's any here, that as we talk about the general and the specific revelation of God, that if they don't know your son, Jesus Christ, that today might be the day that they receive him. If there are those who are walking in sin, even as one of his believers, that they have the light, they have the truth, they know the truth, but they still choose to walk in darkness, God. I pray that this morning they would confess and forsake that to you. That they would choose to live a life that is obedient, that is pleasing, it is pleasant. I pray that they'll find the riches of the word of God to be more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey to them. If there's any here today, God, who are discouraged or depressed, I pray that they would take a careful evaluation of their life. What's our input? Depressing, worldly-centered movies? Depressing news? Depressing social media where everybody else appears to be happy except you? Lord, instead, I pray that you would help us to fill our hearts with the word of God, which enlightens the eyes, which rejoices the heart.
0: I pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today If you would like to make a decision To ask Christ into your heart Click on the link in the show notes And we will be able to help you Find your way to Jesus If you enjoyed today's message Give our podcast channel some love By liking and subscribing to it And as promised If you would like more information about Unity You can connect with us At UnityBaptistAshland.com Or on Facebook At UBCAshland Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.